episode 311 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Emily Kubinkanik. Nathan Smith. And Ash Baker. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we'll be continuing our Young Critics Watch All Movie series with 1970s Husbands. So we're going to talk about some sad men. But first... We're going to talk about movies that we saw this week, and I will mention that if you're looking for some thoughts on Black is King, which I feel like is kind of one of the more talked about movies happening at the moment, the latest from Beyonce, uh, Courtney Anderson wrote a really nice review that is on Cinematary.com, so I would go and check that out. And then we also have a review of Bloodshot from Logan Kinney that's on Cinematary, so two uh, two relatively recent releases there on the on the website but let's go ahead and talk about some movies that we saw this week and um emily i'm going to kick it off with you because you caught a movie that we actually covered in this series but i'm curious to kind of get your thoughts on uh the black cat yeah i'm sad i didn't watch this before um that episode because i feel like there's probably a lot to talk about it um but uh i liked it i i have watched the bride of frankenstein for another podcast um, and so I was in a universal monster kind of mood and I hadn't heard of this one, um, outside of, I think I listened to the, you must remember this like series on Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff and this one, like the, uh, I guess filming of it was interesting, but yeah, it's about, um, Bela Lugosi's on a train with this honeymoon couple and, um, they crash on a bus and they seek refuge into in this um creepy guy's really art deco house um and yeah just i don't know he's much creepier than he even looks i love the hairstyle that they put on him just everything just looks so great um but yeah it's super short but like really interesting and exciting i liked it a lot yeah, I mean, I remember talking, we had Mike Thorne on the episode, and we talked a lot about, like, the kind of, like, modernism of the house, because it's like you have these, like, you know, these old classic movie stars who are just completely, like, hamming it up together. It's great. Um, but then you have, like, this this kind of modernist house that's built on top of, like, you know, it gets into all the... Uh, like the the atrocities of the war and such that like this house is built upon and um i don't know it's like this we this kind of just completely out of left field uh somewhat absurd you know horror movie from 1934 starring like two of the biggest stars at the time um it seems like a weird like, like such a weird movie to make at that point um and so i'm glad you liked it because it, it, it i don't know how it would sell to like a you know just more casual movie watching audience yeah, I don't know if that's like the first universal like movie that you should watch, but once if you like that kind of stuff, I think it's uh, easily appreciated. Yeah. Um well, I, and I would recommend for for people if you have not seen it, it you know, it's it's pretty widely available, but uh it, like online if you would like to go that route. But uh you can also go back and listen to our episode on it because Mike Thorne is very says, you know, a lot of very smart things about it. He's very articulate. So uh, I would recommend, you know, not just plugging the podcast, but uh, I would recommend going back into that one. Um, very cool. I, I also know that just looking at, um, I forgot if it was, I think it's the Peacock, the NBC streaming service. They have a bunch of like, 
Universal monster movies, I think, on it, don't they? I can't, I can't remember. Seen what's on there yet, but I'll have to take a look. Yeah, I think they have because that's I saw somebody talking about how that's one of the the pluses of that streaming service is they have like the entire because they have the deal with Universal since that's you know under whatever how company owns you know Comcast, Universal, and and NBC, but uh. Yeah, they have like all the Universal monster movies on on Peacock, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I hope they're like nice prints of them because you can watch them on YouTube anywhere, but they're pretty crappy to look at. And like the setting, like the sets and things are they should be pristine. Absolutely. Well, cool. Um, well, Nathan, I'm going to toss it over to you. You caught two movies this past week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two movies I wanted to talk about. Um, <clears throat> The first was actually one of the best sort of movie watching experiences that I've had recently. It was just something that I watched uh, a little bit on a whim because it was on Mubi and it's still available to stream in the like Mubi archival library. But um, I just wanted to like catch it uh, a little bit after it had been added, um, just in case it like vanished or anything. Um, but it's this German movie from 1994 called the invincibles directed by Dominic Graf, who is a filmmaker that I really don't know very much about. Um, but he is somebody who has kind of worked in multiple modes. He, um, has done more sort of like, Adults, you know, like art house dramas. Um, but he's also really known for his crime thrillers. He's done period pieces. He's worked a lot in television and done TV movies as well. Um, and this movie, The Invincibles, um, is one of his sort of uh, most well regarded thrillers. And the reason why it got added to movie is because it was just sort of recently rediscovered and restored. And and um, a re-released in a director's cut, which incorporates some footage that was not in the original release of the movie, which is like on videotape, I guess, because that's like the only copy of it that still exists. There's not an actual negative or film print of it anymore. So it's just like it's not a substantial portion of the movie, but every you know, here and there, there are scenes or shots or moments where there, this kind of videotape cuts in, um, from, you know, cuts in between the footage, the actual footage, which is like very gorgeously, uh, restored and pristine otherwise. Um, but basically it is this, it's, uh, you know, it's a police procedural, but it's also a very, uh, intricate political and legal thriller. Um, uh, but it's also very surreal and it just like really disarmed me. It's basically about this SWAT team in Germany and the movie starts out like several years in the past from the main events of the film. Um, and we're sort of following this guy who's the leader of a SWAT unit and he's with his partner and he's driving, uh, this guy, Simon is driving his, his partner, uh, uh, Heinz to the hospital and Heinz's uh, wife has just given birth to a daughter 
daughter um, and she's suffering from a severe disability and it seems like you know she may not live very long if she does she's probably going to live a very like compromised life um, so Simon is like taking his friend to the hospital and in this very jarring scene just like several minutes into the movie just like within the opening credits this guy Hines brutally murders his newborn daughter um, and it's like very just like intense and just like a, a very shocking way to start a movie um, and then you jump several years forward in time Simon is still working as a as an officer and you find out that Hines after he killed his daughter he uh, killed himself and it's been like four years since then but Simon is on a mission and he gets ambushed by this guy who he thinks is looks familiar and he's thinking about it and he realizes eventually that he thinks this guy is Heinz who died you know killed himself four years ago um, and he's like you know it makes no sense that this guy would be back you know he his body washed up headless on the shore like you know I, like uh, he's he has to be dead um, but slowly he starts sort of like finding out this whole conspiracy um, and this like whole kind of web of lies that goes up to some very high levels in the German government um, and that has a lot more to do with like organized crime and all of these just like various forces of political corruption. So I don't know. So it is a police procedural and that is definitely in, in these times, uh, a movie that I, you know, is kind of a hard sell. Um, and it's very, you know, Michael Mann like, I think, or like something like the French connection. It's that kind of like very cold calculating thriller. Um, but it's also just a very weird movie and is just v has a lot of just like strange moments. Like the whole conclusion of the movie is this in insane set piece set in the in the Bavarian Alps, which is this sort of like Hitchcock chase, but also filtered through like the cinematography of the third season of Twin Peaks. Like it's just, I don't know. It's on the one hand, like <clears throat> very familiar genre tropes, but it's sort of filtered through a strange, slightly surreal visual lens. Um, it's also very lurid and very horny and has some very strange sex scenes um, like <laughs> the main character and his wife like <laughs> furiously fucking each other uh, in their children's bedroom in this field of balloons while like tribal drums play on the soundtrack which sounds like very corny but somehow just within the whole vibe of this movie it just all like makes sense um, so I don't know it's just like every once in a while I guess you watch a movie that you don't really know anything about going in and it just totally blows your mind and that's sort of what happened with me and the director's cut of the invincibles. Um, I like kept pausing the movie every half hour or so because I wanted to extend the experience. Um, I didn't want it to be over because it was just like, I was just enjoying it in a way that I haven't really enjoyed a like new unseen movie in, in the past several months. So I'm definitely excited to go more into Dominic Graff's work. Um, but unfortunately it seems like a lot of his movies are sort of hard to come by in the United States. So I hope that this movie being on movie 
will maybe lead to some kind of resurgence or reconsideration for Graph. Yeah, I was going to ask. I mean, is, is so is it still on Mubi? I know the, they kind of rotate stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's like in it technically expired but they have their like new archival library now where they have like movie exclusives and like restorations and things that they have like exclusive streaming rights for so um you know they used to have just the 30 days of stuff that you could watch but now the invincibles is one of those exclusives that that you can i presume watch indefinitely um in their library oh nice um so yeah the invincibles it's it's pretty unbeatable. Speaking of Lorid, you you had another movie you watched. Yes, um, very different movie. The only thing they really have in common is that they're both relentlessly horny. Um, I as I say that, I find my mouth is getting dry, so I'm going to take a sip of water uh, before <laughs> I talk about the horniness of Howard the Duck. Listen, we got we got. We got Ash on the episode. It we're, 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 it's open. It's open. I, I know. I'm I'm looking at uh, the Invincibles right now, and I'm so ready to watch this when we're done recording. Yeah. Oh <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely got some stuff that you would enjoy. Some some tensions um but howard the duck is also a very uh sexually tense movie um this is the much maligned george lucas produced marvel comics adaptation from 1986 which is a movie i've wanted to see for ages as a noted george lucas stan george lucas defender um you know, I'd go to grave for the Star Wars prequels, that sort of shit. I always wanted to watch this movie because I felt like I would probably be friendlier to it than most people. Um, and I also really like the Howard the Duck comics. I, Howard the Duck was one of the first comic book characters that I really remember reading when I was a kid. Um they were some of the few comic books that my dad had from his own childhood. Um, so I was like, oh, whoa, like vintage comic books. Like, this is so cool. And I just really remember Howard the Duck leaving an impression on me, not just because, you know, they were old comics, but also because they were just unlike anything else. They're just like very, if you're not familiar with them at all, Howard the Duck is kind of a spoof, you know, not only of like... You know, not just like Daffy Duck and Looney Tunes and like cartoon characters. Like I think Howard the Duck is just sort of kind of a spoof on all cartoon characters in a sense. But the comics uh, take the piss out of Marvel tropes a lot of the time. Um, and like, you know, Howard the Duck like ran for president and there are all these just like thing, crazy things that happen in the universe of Howard the Duck. And um, it's always been sort of fascinating to me that this is a movie that was made, particularly in the 1980s before there was a Marvel cinematic universe, before there were really any <laughs> Marvel movies for some reason they decided to make Howard the Duck um, so I will say like the first foremost thing about this movie is that it is like there is no duck sex but there is a lot of innuendo and Howard just 
fucks, you know, it's like Howard the fuck more like it. Um, he is from a duck planet and somehow is beamed to earth and he hooks up with this punk rocker played by Leah Thompson. Um, of course, from the back to the future movies. And for some reason, she just instantly falls for this smooth talking cigar chomping duck and is immediately like trying to hop in bed with this duck. And like everybody in the movie, pretty much on earth is freaked out by Howard. They're like, Whoa, a talking duck. But for some reason, Leah Thompson is just like, I mean, I guess that, you know, everybody has their thing and I don't want to kink shame, but it's just like Howard comes to earth and immediately finds the first person who has like a duck fetish. It's crazy. Just like the, the synchronicity, the serendipity of that encounter is truly something. Um, but I just, it's, it's, it's very interesting to me because I feel like you know, obviously George Lucas didn't direct this movie. Um, it was directed by Willard Hewick, who uh, was classmates with George Lucas at USC and they were sort of collaborators. And I think he was, a, Willard was a producer on S- Star Wars. Um, and he also, with his wife, Gloria Katz, co-directed the horror movie Messiah of Evil. Um, so there is a sort of like horror, body horror, gross out element to this movie. And there are a lot of slime and goop and stuff like that, which is great and fun. Um, but it's just very interesting to me because this was like a, you know, a project that George Lucas worked on for a long time. And it was actually something that he wanted to do before star Wars, after American graffiti, he was interested in this property. Um, and I feel like George Lucas as a person, but also like the star Wars movies usually themselves, or at least his star Wars movies kind of have this image of frigidity about them. Like I, do you know, like I don't think that people think of George Lucas as like a celebrity who's like out there, you know, really living it up in his sex life or anything like that. You know, he seems like a pretty quiet kind of conservative, (laughs) you know, not politically conservative, but just sort of like, I don't know. He just seems like a reserved, guy but also George Lucas uh, was in a relationship with Linda Ronstadt for a little bit and I believe that Howard the Duck is basically his like crazed horned up like post breakup with Linda Ronstadt um, movie it's just all of George Lucas's repressed bizarre sexual urges that he repressed in movies like star Wars and American graffiti, you know, which are wholesome, good, clean fun. Uh, here he just let it all out and let it loose. And his name is, you know, it's not directed by George Lucas. So maybe he can say like, Oh, this isn't, this isn't me. Like I'm not, I'm not represented by this movie, but I don't know. I see you, George. Like, you're into some freaky shit, I think. Um, Howard the Duck is evidence of it, regardless of the quality. I think that Howard the Duck merits viewing, just if you're interested in speculating on George Lucas's romantic dalliances, which maybe I am. I absolutely am, personally. I I think that there's a lot there. There's a lot to be unpacked. I mean, I would have, you know... He could have let loose a little bit more in the in the Star Wars prequels. Really, you know, it gets a little it's a little steamy, but it's more like, um, you know, repress steamy. 
<laughs> yeah, it's like it's I don't know. Yeah, you know, it's the Attack of the Clones is like very sensual, but it still feels like a very kind of storybook idea of like desire or attraction or, or romance. You know, it's like this tragic melodrama um, and it's just very like prescripted. And this movie is like Howard goes to the unemployment office and like sniffs a booty. Um, <laughs> So uh, it's on a very different wavelength. How are you gonna feel at, at you know at the eventual turn when oh my God. the Marvel movies incorporate Howard the Duck? Because they've they've flirted with him uh, in the Guardians of the yeah. Galaxy movies. So I mean, it's gonna happen at some point. I mean, if they do it, all I'm saying is give me the paycheck. You know, if somebody has to sell their soul, let me do it. Because I feel like I would do right by by Howie. Um, well, I would. Was, he was voiced by Seth Green in the Guardians. Although, although movie. it's honestly, it's hard to you know there will not be any of this horniness in those movies. You know, they'll maybe they'll they'll get to be wacky in the way that like people are like, oh, Thor Ragnarok is so colorful and fun, but it won't it won't be crazy like this movie is. But at least we have it. We'll always have Howard. All right. Well, Ash, Ash, you're gonna take us home with. Uh... With another pretty horny movie, quite honestly. It's a pretty horny movie. Yeah, um, in some ways, yes. Um, So I've been recently, um, Juliana from uh, Cinematary Zone, Juliana Ramsey has gotten me into Hannibal, the television series, which is long discontinued, but... God, is it good. And um, so I've been watching a lot of cannibal shit um, when I've not been watching Hannibal. Um, Just to slow the, you know, I'm trying to stretch it out as long as I can at this point just because I'm enjoying it. So I've been watching other cannibal stuff just to, you know, um, you know, stay in the mood. And so um, I, I've known about Jennifer's body for a long time, and um, I knew I needed to watch it. I knew basically what I knew about it going in was um, Megan Fox, lesbian cannibal. And I was like, okay, this is perfect. So basically... We don't begin with Megan Fox, though. We sort of begin with a frame narrative. Um, And actually, um, the uh, protagonist is Amanda Seyfried, Seyfried, however you want to pronounce her name. Um, And the frame narrative is uh, Amanda Seyfried's character is like in a mental ward institution place and um is basically like uh well things weren't always this way i didn't used to be this person who's in a mental ward let's check out the flashback and so we enter the you know the um the flashback uh narrative whatever that's called i forget but um (laughs) but anyway so um Basically, uh, months before, um, Amanda Seyfried's character and Jennifer, uh, 
Jennifer, who's played by Megan Fox, Megan Fox's character, the the titular Jennifer, the titular Jennifer, the titillating Jennifer, um, uh, are like best friends, even though they have nothing in common. Um, Anita is the Amanda Seyfried's character's name, so I'll just call her that. So Anita and Jennifer are like best friends. They have nothing in common. Anita's like really nerdy and like just sort of sort of normal looking and Jennifer's like uh really bitchy and a cheerleader and like just mega hot and um and so but uh so Jennifer's like hey let's go to this like really sweet like concert this indie band's in from this city and we have to go watch it and so anyway they go to like the only um music venue in town um which is called something crazy i forget what it's called um it's called something really stupid um and they go they go to the local um like dive bar music venue to watch this uh indie rock band called low shoulder which is a great name. Um, But the, you know, and Jennifer's talking about how hot the lead singer is, how she can't wait to like, you know, flirt it up with the lead singer, probably fuck him, like whatever. And Anita's like, ew, like, why are you like this? Anyway, they get there. Um, Jennifer's flirting with the lead singer before the show, goes to get them... Uh, or goes to get him a um, a drink, which is Nathan. I remembered it's that's the reference. It's it's like a nine eleven shot. It's two it's two um, oh, red, right. white, and blue yeah. shots um, that are in like tall two tall skinny um, like glasses that are supposed to look like the twin towers. Um, so really weird, like, um, 9-11 reference, but anyway, so she goes and, like, uh, gets them a drink, even though she's underage, and, but while she's at the bar, Anita hears them talking about Jennifer and how, ah, do you think she's a virgin, and just, like, talking really gross about Jennifer. Anyway... The bar burns down during the show. Something catches on fire. The whole venue burns down. Like, five p- people are killed, at least. Um, Jennifer and Anita survive, but Jennifer ends up leaving with the band in their van, and Anita is, like, freaked out. Later that night, when Anita is home alone, she's, like, at home, and Jennifer rolls up, like, covered in blood, and is like acting really spooky and stuff and like giggling and she's like oh no what has happened (laughs) and she's just like covered in blood anyway come to find out jennifer is eating people and it's very hot but like and there's like girl kissing so you should watch it (laughs) Um, I don't want to, like, I I was actually surprised, like, the movie, the way that it was, like, structured and, like, the style of it was kind of, like, 
just like normal team like teen comedy sort of setup but I was actually like uh like into the mystery of it I guess like um you know a lot of movies like that it's like you watch him and in the first 10 minutes you're like okay like I know how it's gonna end but I actually didn't know how this movie well obviously I knew how it was going to end partly because we get the frame narrative but um I wasn't sure how it all would go down and so I was really curious and I was surprised by it and so it was it was a good uh it was a good watch but I'm very curious Nathan about your theory (laughs) um I mean, you you mention the nine eleven shots, and uh, I, when I watched this movie several years ago, I was just like the whole time like this movie's about nine eleven because you have this. I mean, the dive bar burning down. You have this like this like tragedy, this building collapsing, and the band from everything I remember of the movie, like in the wake of that, the band sort of position themselves as like heroes and are sort of held up by the town um but really like you know uh not to you know give it all away but you know they're like uh, up to some some dark shit and uh some nefarious things and there's this just kind of like very 2000s like enforced patriotic like backdrop to the movie um like I don't know I just felt like in addition to that like 9-11 shot reference it just feels very much in this like 2000s world of like the way that people respond to this tragedy felt very much reminiscent to me of like or felt like it was commenting on the way that people sort of responded to 9-11 and sort of like um were like overlooking what what's actually going on and the way that this this uh disaster is being sort of appropriated to uh not so great ends um in the way that it's being used to hurt people um is being covered by this sort of like enforced sense of like uh, you know optimism because of these heroes or or whatever um and i don't know i feel like that's not you know that obviously the main point of the movie but you know i think uh diablo cody is obviously like you know a really um clever screenwriter and so i think that it's just like it's just uh i mean like all teen comedies i feel like are about or just teen movies are about very much about like the culture you know pop culture and i feel like this jennifer's body takes it a little bit further where it's like using the way that teen comedies are about the emergence of like so you know you know social relationships and like identity and all that stuff that happens when you're a teenager it pushes that a little bit further to be about like the formation of like ideological identity i don't know yeah yeah i remember like i think i definitely am with you on um on that it feels like a really subtle sort of um, metaphor, but like there are moments when, like I'm thinking of, there's that moment in the classroom when um, the teacher announces that the band is gonna like come to play at uh, prom or right, whatever. Yeah, 
like, oh, they're taking uh, a, the time to travel all the way here from their packed world tour um, to play at our school um, because uh, we've or because they are because we're special to them or whatever. And um, like Anita says something sort of like, uh, you know, like a little passive aggressive, like under her breath or whatever. Or, um, and, and this girl, <laughs> um, uh, like across the room is like, just like tries to like bite her head off. Like, <laughs> yeah. You don't even know, like, <laughs> like they were carrying people out of the burning building yeah, and blah, yeah. blah, 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 just like, going to bat for them and Anita's like I was there like they didn't do any of that like and that song is tired <laughs> like um yeah so I'm definitely uh yeah definitely with you there nice well it, it kind of makes me want to revisit the that one because uh I forgot what series it was with I think it was the uh the horror directed by female director series we did a few years ago for October um but yeah, another plug for the for past episodes. Go back and listen to that. Um, all right, we're going to take a quick break. We will be back talking 1970s husbands after this. Hey, Cemetery listeners, Andrew here. At the midpoint of this week's episode, I want to direct you to some of the non-podcasty things we have to offer. First, if you're a fan of what we do, please consider supporting us on Patreon. For $5 a month, you get three things. A shout-out at the end of every episode, the opportunity to choose a movie we cover on the show, and our Patreon-exclusive podcast, Film Theory and Chill, in which we look at a piece of theory once a month, deconstruct it, and then just chill out, talking about whatever else we have going on. All Patreon support goes solely to paying our writers for their reviews that go up on our website every Monday. Also, at the bottom of Cinematary.com, you can sign up for our free newsletter. Every Sunday, we send out an email with the latest podcast episode, Patreon content, and written reviews. This is perfect for those who want to keep tabs on what's happening, but might be too busy to see the posts when they go up. Before I go, one more quick thing. The easiest thing you can do to support us is to give Cinematary a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. This is quick, free, easy, and we will read your review out on the show once we get it. To recap, consider donating to our Patreon, sign up for the free newsletter, and please give us a rating and review. Thanks for listening. Let's get back to the show. Episode 311 of Cinematary. In this part, we will be continuing our Young Critics Watch Old Movies series with 1970s Husbands. Written and directed by John Cassavetes, the film stars Cassavetes, Peter Falk, and Ben Gazzara. 
The quiet, simple family lives of Gus, Harry, and Archie are shattered when their best friend Stuart has a heart attack and dies suddenly. Now facing their mortality, the three men fall into their own midlife crises, first by spending their days playing basketball and nights drinking, and eventually by ditching their families altogether for a sudden getaway to London where they face the temptation to cheat on their wives for the first time. Cassavetes has stated that this was a very personal film for him, having experienced the loss of a loved one after his older brother died at the age of 30. He wrote the dialogue after improvising with Falk and Gazzara and built the characters around the personalities of the actors. An interview with Peter Falk in in December 1970 stated that he first met filmmaker John Cassavetes in mid-1967 at the lunchroom in Paramount Pictures. At the time, Falk wanted Cassavetes to co-star with him in Elaine May's Mikey and Nicky, and Cassavetes, who had always uh, hoped to work together with with Falk, readily agreed. In the same meeting, Cassavetes pitched the idea for a collaboration between him, himself, Falk, and Ben Gazzara about, quote, three guys whose best friend dies and they go on a binge. Um, Which, honestly, is a better way to describe it than the the synopsis I just gave. Um, (laughs) Falk claimed a year passed before he reconnected with Cassavetes, who encouraged him to take a role opposite him in Machine Gun McCain in 1970, so they could work together on the script of Husbands. Ben Gazzara also helped develop the project during his time off from the filming of The Bridge at uh, Remagen in 1969. Cassavetes, Falk, and Gazzara were said to have total artistic control over the project. The LA Times wrote in November 1969 that Cassavetes got Falk and Gazzara, quote, nearly ultimate freedom in portraying their characters. The three relied heavily on improvisation, and the scene in which Falk takes off his clothes at a bar was the result of Cassavetes and Gazzara's spontaneous goading. A 154-minute version of Husbands debuted at the San Francisco Film Festival in October 1970. In a November 1970 LA Times column, film reporter Algene Harmitz described the picture as, quote, the most un... (laughs) the most... uh, (laughs) the most detested film at the film festival and claimed that 10% of the audience left after a prolonged vomit scene. Festival director Albert Johnson refuted the claims in a letter to the editor published in the LA Times describing the audience as simply astonished by the film and predicting that husbands would, quote, prove to be among the greatest neorealist treatments of American character ever filmed. Harmitz responded to Johnson by suggesting the picture might be significantly improved if cuts were made, although it was ultimately edited down to 138 minutes before its theatrical release. On December 8, 1970, in New York, the December, ni- December 9, 1970 review in the New York Times still classified the film as, quote, un- almost unbearably long. Uh, feminist writer and activist Betty Friedan wrote an editorial title, quote, Unmasking the Rage in the American Dream House, published in the New York Times, which she praised husbands as the, quote, strongest statement of the case of the case for women's liberation i have yet seen on stage or screen friedan acknowledged that cassavetes might not have consciously intended to put forth such a case while asserting that the film effectively confronted quote the alienation loneliness and unmet need for human love and intimacy inherent in traditional marriages in which men acted as breadwinners and women as homemakers New York Times 1970 said, Husbands, John Cassavetes' first film as a director's faces, is a personal, almost private movie that is devoted to the exploration of the mysteries of a very middle-class American friendship. Like Faces, which was rambling and funny and accurate, and which I admired, 
the new film demonstrates a concern for panicky and inarticulate squares that is so unpatronizing that it comes close to becoming reverential in a solemnly religious sense. Husbands, however, also puts one's tolerance of simulated cinema verite to the test. It is almost unbearably long. It is a narrative film without any real narrative, and although it is a movie about three characters, those characters are seen almost exclusively in terms of their limiting relationship. It's as if someone decided to photograph a tug-of-war and photographed only the rope between the contestants. And Roger Ebert, 1970, said, With husbands, a deliberate effort has been made to simulate the 16mm cinema verite look, even though the graininess isn't necessary. That isn't dishonest. A director has a right to do anything he can to make his film work, but it doesn't grow organically out of the material. Nothing in this film, in fact, seems organic to it. The idea, the style, the narrative, the acting, all seem laid on to a reluctant film. Faces was all over the, was all of, all over the place. Husbands is in pieces. Uh, so yeah, on that note, let's talk a little bit about Husbands. Um, it's been a while since we've talked about a John Cassavetes movie. We talked about, uh, Women Under the Influence a very long time ago in one of the Young Critics series. And so it's kind of interesting to go back, at least for me, to go back to Cassavetes' directorial work, since I've actually seen a lot more of just him acting recently, whether it's Mikey and Nikki or The Dirty Dozen or something like that. I've seen, you know, it's it's kind of good to, to revisit him as a director. And I'll admit, and I'm excited to kind of have this conversation, but it was a movie for me that was... I mean, I'm sure this is the case for a lot of people. It's incredibly difficult to watch just because there's a lot there's a lot happening that is so you know emotionally impactful um but at the same time it i I watched it yesterday and i've been thinking about it all day today like it's been it's really an endlessly fascinating movie at least for me so far um but i mean what, what how did you all react to it ash what did you make of husbands um i am a huge cassavetes fan i um i think a woman under the influence is probably one of my favorite movies ever and this was not to take credit but this was uh one of my picks that i threw in the pot for um uh this series and i'm so happy that people voted it in but um i hadn't seen it until um this week and i do agree that it is to some degree like difficult to watch um not I feel like in a different way than um uh a lot of like I don't know I feel like a woman under the influence to some degree is difficult to watch but it's mostly because everything is so emotionally intense but this one I feel like it was um a little difficult to watch in moments for the same reason and other times I felt like I was losing a little bit of momentum um, from time to time just because I didn't know exactly where we were headed. Um, and I didn't um, and immediately, uh, like, I mean, I'd read the description, but I just wasn't sure where um, the movie was taking us. And, uh, but I, absolutely loved just the um 
the, I guess, relationship between these three men. I mean, from, like, the very first, um, like, it's not a scene, but just the intro part that's, like, the slideshow of the photographs of the four of them um, with the friend who dies included is just, like, fantastic and does an amazing job of, like, um, showing, uh, like, this, like, brotherhood, friendship, and, um, as it goes on, it's like, like, you want to love these men, but they're also, like, such shits, but you love, you love, like, how much they love each other, Um, and that was sort of the thing that, like, that was the momentum for me. Like, whenever I sort of lost momentum, the thing that ended up keeping me going was, like, I love to watch these dudes love each other. (laughs) And so my favorite moments of the movie that I, I, I feel were, like, just the, like, obvious, um, chemistry between the three of them. No, I, I, I can't disagree with that because you, they there is just like this like deep well of love and affection between the three the three main characters that uh, you know we can we can talk about it a little bit more in depth in a little bit but um, yeah it's it's it kind of there's something endearing about it but then you also like you said like they are little shits. <laughs> just like so often in the movie that it kind of it it does you know um make as rooting for them is kind of a is a strange term for it but like sympathizing with them or empathizing with them kind of difficult um emily what'd you make of husbands um i like it better upon reflection than viewing experience which maybe like a lot of people feel um but i like am not super well versed in cassavetes um i just watched gloria before it left criterion and i liked that and um i'm i love shadows but um so i was really excited to get into um you know his filmography more with this it um i don't know it is different than any movie that i usually go for which i really appreciated um kind of putting myself through that in for lack of a better way of describing it but um yeah i mean like it's weird a lot of the short stories and literature that i like lack the catharsis that we try to put on um the end of stories with characters like this and so i really appreciated that in a movie as well because I feel like that's still, even today, like pretty rare to see. Absolutely. Uh, Nathan, what did you make of the movie? It's it's interesting. I don't know. It's like it is very um, overwhelming and uncomfortable uh, and difficult to watch in all the ways that Cassavetes is often difficult to watch. 
you know, he's a filmmaker who oftentimes is very interested in crisis. You know, I also just watched Gloria uh, last weekend and you know that's a movie where like the whole thing is just kind of like one crisis after the other you know um, Gina Rollins is trying to like get this kid around the city and make sure that the mob doesn't get him and she's dealing with her own shit at the same time and everything is falling apart and like this is you know, Husbands is also a crisis movie I mean A Woman Under the Influence you know is a, is, is a movie about somebody in crisis and it's a different kind of crisis than we see here too you know it's like more immediate psychological I think whereas this is like it is this psychological existential crisis but it's like a crisis out of these guys avoiding the real crisis you know like everything in their lives is sort of in free fall because they're not like actually confronting like their friend's death and dealing with it in like an actually healthy way they're just you know like staying up late like uh or like not not even staying up late just like literally like going without sleep for i could not even tell how long in this movie they had kind of gone um without sleeping but it's just like i don't know i feel like it's very rare for a movie to feel completely unpredictable to feel like completely free form and sort of unhinged from moment to moment like anything could happen um and Cassavetes is one of the rare filmmakers who I feel like really can get to that place where part of what's uncomfortable is not just that the things on screen are literally uncomfortable from like the vomit to the scenes of spousal abuse to like the scenes of sort of, uh, you know, like really uncomfortable sexual discomfort and sort of violation of consent and stuff, you know, like that stuff is like literally physical and physically uncomfortable to watch. But I think there's another kind of discomfort in just having no idea what these characters could do or say from moment to moment. You, we only know them through their actions and reactions. There's like no, we're so close and so intimate to people, but we don't really see their like actual interiority. We just see what they do. And so it's just like we are as the viewers, I feel like are in a similar state of free fall to the characters because it's just impossible to tell uh, where this like ferocious streak of destructive energy is going to go next. Yeah. It's, it's a, um, I think also just the, the length of the movie does a lot of that for you because it's, I mean, it's like what, two and a half hours almost of, and you know, you just kind of, mm-hmm. it's, it's such a strange experience because yeah, like you're, you're dealing with a lot of these kind of uncomfortable moments, but it also just kind of lingers, you know, right? Like that, that first you you they have the funeral and then they have the prolonged sequence where they're at that bar and they're just kind of with a bunch of people and they're all drinking and then you have probably to me next to when uh john cassavetti's character uh gus is is in the bedroom with the woman in london 
probably the most uncomfortable sequence of the of the movie for me was when uh the three of them are just heckling this woman who so pretty much for the entire scene like people yeah. have been kind of going around the table and like singing drinking songs and singing just songs of remembrance to the to the person who died and so this woman starts singing and it's and it's a it's a sequence that i guess I don't know, maybe it wasn't as long as I thought it was, but it felt like it was going on for like 45 minutes. And it was just them like berating, like kind of berating her and then like pulling back a little bit and then kind of trying to make her not feel completely like dejected. And then (laughs) Peter Falk is stripping and then he's putting his clothes back on. And then she's singing again. Like, it's just like this prolonged sequence. And there's so many different, like you're feeling so many different things all in this one, like contained sequence where everybody is just like tightened up at this table in a bar and, it, I don't know. I think that, that to me that that kind of felt like a microcosm of the experience of watching this is that um, you're just you, there's so many things being like uh, being just tossed at you and um, because there's so many things being tossed at you, like you're unable to really get a sense of of anybody or really any place. Um, the the other thing I was thinking about throughout this movie is just how how he utilizes like rooms. Um, it, it just feels like you almost get locked into a room, whether it's late in the movie in London when they have their respective hotel rooms or you, when they're, they feel locked in that bathroom where they're vomiting or they feel, uh, kind of locked in or for that, for that small sequence, Harry, you feel locked with Harry and his wife when he goes home briefly and has like the fight with her and the knife, um, it just feels like he, like Cassavetes kind of sequesters these different moments in the movie and he just really, the space of the scene is also like, it's not like they're going into a different room or going out of the frame. It's like, you're, you're in there with them. And, um, I don't know, to, the, the use of, of space in this was really fascinating to me. I wanted out of that scene in the bar so bad. And I was like, it just felt like it went on for so long. And then the next one was even worse of a, like, uh, experience i just couldn't believe that he put those like back to back it was unrelenting i feel like there's such an intense sense of like displacement and like dislocation from space too where sometimes you just really don't know totally at first where you are because of how tightly the camera is so often focused on you know faces and bodies it's so it just he really like only cares about uh putting people at the forefront and so everything else is sort of like uh we're it's almost oblivious to us because we just like you don't know where you are i feel like i feel like that really contributes a lot to that uncomfortable feeling is like not just you know everybody's close together in that bar room but you also just the way the scene starts it just it just cuts to it it just opens like we're already in this space it's dark we don't have like a good clear sense of kind of the outline of it you you feel very insecure and i think very unaware of where you're at the whole time yeah absolutely i mean it's it's like that's why it's it's one of those like while i'm watching it (laughs) i'm deeply uncomfortable but then while i was reflecting on it later i was like but at the same time like there's something 
at least in terms of like the filmmaking technique, very admirable and like interesting to me about how, I mean, he, it, he kind of just locks you in there with whatever, especially like in the sequence where, you know, the Gus character, the Cassavetes character is in the, is in London and he's in that bedroom with that woman. I mean, you just feel completely trapped in there with them. It's like, you can't, there, there's nowhere else to go. And, to me, I find that interesting because it, it, it does. It, like, you have to – there's nothing else you can engage with. You have to kind of engage with whatever is being put on screen. Um, and I feel like, you know, maybe people have different feelings about that. But, you know, going back to your point, Nathan, at the, at the top, like, there's really any direction that this can go. And you're trapped in this room with, this, with these two people right now. And I don't, to to me that's something kind of like thrilling on the on the on like just the film watching experience where yeah I don't I don't like I never like plan to be in this situation but I, I'm just trapped here and I'm trying to figure out how I can leave <laughs> without just turning off the movie um, I don't know if that's you know the way that we should be taking in all movies but i I just found that really fascinating while thinking about just the experience of of husbands um did did anybody else kind of have like uh like just this feeling of being trapped while watching uh while watching the movie at times yeah definitely um (laughs) i feel like when we were with their perspective um like dates um, I was feeling that way big time. Well, especially, I feel like I always feel that way with Peter Falk when he's just like, he's so good at being like belligerent and, uh, like disagreeable. But when he's just like being like, well, you going to talk? You're going to not talk? <laughs> like, you know, do you speak English? Like, it's like, oh, my God. Like, uh, just, like, get me out of this room. <laughs> it's it's kind of funny, like, while watching this, because I've watched uh, Mikey and Nikki a bunch of times, uh, or at least a handful of times, you know, before, before watching this. And so that's kind of the, the I guess, baseline of the kind of Cassavetes and Peter Falk, you know, together. Cause in woman under the influence, like Peter Falk's in that movie, but Cassavetes is behind the camera. And so it's, it was interesting kind of thinking about how this movie approaches kind of, you know, the, the inability for men to express their emotions or like how they're feeling in a moment compared to Mikey and Nikki, which I, the thing I love most about that movie is it's just like you have like both of these characters have exactly what they're wanting to say that's just sitting there like percolating bubbling like right at the surface but they're unable to like take that final step and just like say what they what they've been dying to say and in this one it feels like they know what they're supposed to say and they're just completely like I'm not even going to engage with that um and so it's a completely different it's it, it's it, I kind of had to reconfigure for that. And, you know, I don't know. I don't I guess initially I didn't really respond to that as well as Mikey and Nikki. I mean, I think like in this movie there, you know, like 
of the beginning, Peter Falk says this thing about like, you know, you can't die from alcohol or cigarettes. You can only die from, from lies and from tension. And there's this way, um, this very, like, I think that this movie really, uh, you know, obviously I'm not a middle-aged man and I don't have a career or family or any of these things. So a certain amount of the crises of this movie are unrelatable to me, but there is something to this movie about like a certain kind of male bonding or socialization where you like are with your friends that you like act kind of crazy with and you know you get drunk and you roughhouse a little bit and you just the way that you behave because you behave in this way that's like immature or not reflective of like your professional responsible self you know you think that that's like being honest because you're you know you're goofing off or whatever like you think that that takes the place of honesty in your relationship and you know these guys like say that they love each other and stuff but really like I feel like the honest communication like doesn't happen like they just this weekend is just like you know literally the movie ends and Peter Falk is just like trying to divide up these toys with John Cassavetes like and just trying to go back to this life that like you know we haven't even seen beyond Ben Gazzara's life we haven't even really truly seen the home lives of these guys you know they've just like attempted to totally disconnect and totally repress everything so I don't know I don't I I I think there's something about like the false honesty of like male friendships that this movie really gets out well where these guys think they're close but they're really like not actually not actually honest with each other uh Ash, Emily, I'm I'm cl- curious on y'all's perspective on <laughs> on the kind of central friendship of these three guys. Since <laughs> as t- as two dudes, you know, Nathan and I are gonna re- probably respond to it in a in a you know in a specific way. So I'm kind of curious how both of you saw th- the kind of friendship and what you made of it. I mean, I um, it was definitely entertaining um, because there's not there's a lot of action. I love just watching them run down the street together. Like I just found that so fun. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I don't watch too many movies and maybe there aren't like very many movies that, um, kind of show this side of, I think what connects them the most is their like satisfaction with their life. And so like, that's a weird thing to, you know, bond over. And, um, so seeing them do that is both sad and really interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I automatically questioned like, why can't we just talk about our feelings? But I know that was an impossibility for them. So, um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed it. (laughs) I feel like it was sort of, um, like, I agree with Nathan. It's like the, like they can't talk about anything. I feel like the highs of their, um, obviously there are a lot of lows and (laughs) we've, we've talked about those, but the highs are sort of like that manic. I, I think of like, like, like frat boys at a party. It's like time to rally. It's like, 
Oh, you're going to London? Oh, oh, you're going to London? Well, I'm going to London too. Are you going to London? Oh, you won't. You won't go to London. And so it's like, you know, it's just like that. (laughs) Just like really like crazy brain thing of that happens when it's like um, (laughs) Friday night and we've had a few drinks and we just like want to go like smash our heads into a wall together because you know the adrenaline's pumping or something so I feel like it's like raw energy and um and like that's sort of what's pulling them together is like the mutual experience of being men in the in similar situations and like the fear that they have that like they've lost one of their own and um and so like that I guess it was sort of an interesting and um at times terrifying and disgusting and at times like really endearing thing to watch Mm -hmm. yeah like because there is something that's so childish about how they behave so often i mean they also do very despicable things but like the shots of them running down the street like the way that they play with each other you know these do not feel like men in their 40s at all so there is this like fun quality to it and there's also this like this way where like it's a razor's edge between like (laughs) healthy and toxic because i think for all of these guys like the most important thing is like supporting your bro like you know the first half of the movie is them being like okay our friend died we need to like get lit for our dead friend you know yes it's also about kind of like not dealing with the emotions and not wanting to go home but they're also kind of like trying at least that's the reasoning is they're like we're trying to pay tribute to our friend we need to go crazy and then they kind of exhaust that but they still want to keep avoiding normal life so they're like oh well uh uh you know, Harry, his, his wife doesn't want anything to do with him now. Like, you know, his whole family's falling apart. He wants to go to London. Like we need to be there for him. We need to support our bro. And it's just like about the danger of, you know, putting your bro before yourself. Like they just keep using their, their friends who are in a crisis as an, as an excuse to like, then go through their own crises. And I think you really, Emily hit it on the head when you said that like what bonds these guys is their repression like that's really like what it is like like the dissatisfaction like you know everything negative in their lives is like what keeps them together um which is i think why the like energy of their friendship is so intense because it's like hanging on by a thread constantly yeah and it's like if they were able to like speak freely and communicate then like they wouldn't be like going to London together. Like, Hey bro, hell yeah, let's go to London and support our bro. They would be like, bro, you're an asshole. <laughs> like they would, they, they would yeah, have they that would, conversation. You choked your wife's yeah. mom. Like, <laughs> Jesus. I think that that's kind of leads in a little bit to, uh, the last thing I kind of wanted to talk about, and this comes from a letterbox review that Kay Austin Collins, the the Vanity Fair film critic, wrote um, about this movie, and he it's kind of interesting because he compares 
uh, the work of Cassavetes, specifically with husbands, to Judd Apatow, who has said, I guess, previously, like in interviews and such, such that he sees Cassavetes as somebody who he looks up to. And there's this part that I think is is good to kind of work off of, and it's it's in it, in its original cut, unseen by most. Husbands was apparently a comedy. This is why I find Apatow's affection for Cassavetes suggestive and illuminating. Apatow's specialty is the bromance, and though his films are never as explicitly dark as this sometimes like in the his treatment of a misanthropic comedian who thinks he's dying and funning people that darkness is unintelligible perceptible just beyond what apatow allows us to see that plus apatow like cassavetes specializes in primitive unpredictable yet predictably haphazard characters who seen with unflattery uh unflattering clarity reveal the strange kinds of inner depth best explored in loosely structured films narratives built to allow that weirdness to seep out over time and breathe apatow's tool is awkward comedy with his x-ray close-ups cassavetes goes a step beyond that to a place less cathartic than humor but too vague and uncertain to be thought of as outright pain it's marvelous even as i don't know what to do with it um I found his his comparison of of like what kind of Judd Apatow is trying to get at, and he kind of gets at it kind of earlier in the um, earlier in the in the uh, in the review talking about what Mike White, who worked with Apatow on Freaks and Geeks, said about uh, Apatow's movies, specifically like Knocked Up and stuff, as disillusioning because the nerds who were once the bullied class the easy prey of the pretty and the popular were suddenly the ones doing the bullying and he's he, he kind of looks at like how the apatow characters are kind of like the lens that we're looking at them like or with which is supposed to kind of have like i guess some degree of empathy for these these kind of bullied people even though in fact the you know they are the bullies now um, and then you have something like the three men and, and husbands, which just kind of roll around the entire movie, bullying everything. Um, but cause it, in his in his you know as, uh, assumption, it's it's like Cassavetes gets at something deeper about what these men are what these men are dealing with. I mean, that's kind of what we've talked about. While Apatow just kind of st- he's just too surface level to really get into anything, and because he never really engages with the characters that he's presenting um it just kind of comes flat uh i mean i don't know is that does that connect with you guys at all um i think that i think that there are a lot of filmmakers who people say resemble cassavetes i think not just judd apatow but particularly recently people are like oh the safties brothers are like john cassavetes and I just think that what he does is very particular and is a lot harder to replicate than it maybe seems because the thing about like a a Judd Apatow movie is still a Hollywood movie and has all of the like fixtures of a Hollywood movie and a John Cassavetes movie is like stripped down to just the bare bones of performance and just these characters like actions and reactions and they like don't exist in a world of where there's like a framework to hold on to um it's just we're just kind of stuck with these people like we don't you know it's not uh 
we don't go in saying like a, you know it's a comedy like or, or or having the same kind of expectations of like star performance or something like that like i don't know i just think that like cassavetti's movies are just like truly character studies in a way that like no or not no other movies but just very few movies are genuinely like just about characters in the way that cassavetti's is yeah i uh I agree. I feel like whenever I hear people say that people, I I don't really have anything to add to that other than I agree, (laughs) but uh, I just feel like people are often like too quick to, to say that, um, like modern filmmakers are, Oh, that's like John Cassavetti. So when, yeah, I, I just have a hard time believing that. Well, it's it's it feels like they're saying that because they're like, you know, to go along with your example, Nathan, like that the Safdie brothers or John Cassavetes or whatever. It's it's more like I was watching Uncut Gems and it's a very uncomfortable experience a lot of the time. And so that's like Cass like the like the experience itself yeah, yeah. is is what is Cassavetes like to them. Um, when that seems very like a very I mean, that's I mean, sure, but that seems to kind of be like a surface, you know, uh, observation when, like we've discussed over the course of this part, like there is, he's doing something specifically with that discomfort. It's not like he's just, you know, I mean, I would assume he's not just dumping you in a room to make you feel uncomfortable just for shits and giggles. So. Like. It makes sense to make the comparison to Apatow because I feel like even in the descriptions in, on IMDb or whatever, try to boil down this story in a way that would fit into like the way that Apatow or other um, Hollywood specifically um, writers and like filmmakers would want to tell this story. But that's obviously, I mean, you watch it and it's not really what you get and so I mean and I don't know I feel like now I mean with him it makes sense that he would enjoy Cassavetes but it's clear that he doesn't go the um as far as like sitting with those characters in a painful experience without really comedy um to kind of break up that uncomfortable feeling like Cassavetes isn't afraid to do that. He doesn't use comedy really as like to make the viewer more comfortable in that scene. It's um, like, I don't know, to say something about the experience. I mean, I think even a lot of times like the comedy in Cassavetes movies makes it more uncomfortable. Cause mm-hmm. like the bar scene, you know, obviously they're like drunk dudes, like who probably think that they're being really fucking hilarious. Like they think that this is the funniest thing in the world to them. And it's like so horrifying to watch. And you were like, let me out of this room. But these guys are like having a great time. So I feel like it's like comedy is not. Yeah. It's just comedy is just kind of like a feature of the world. Like, you know, it's, it's people using comedy in Cassavetti's movies as a way to relate to the world. And that's not the way that, we as the viewer like relate to the movie in the way that you do with an Apatow movie. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say just kind of in, in conjunction with what Emily said is that, 
Um, I mean, Apatow's never going to sacrifice his characters, you know, where at the end of the movie, he doesn't care if you like Adam Sandler or Seth Rogen or whomever. Like, he, he's not going to be at the end of, like, knocked up. I don't care if you dislike Seth Rogen. This is where we're at. Um, it seems like Cassavetti is, is much is completely fine sacrificing himself and Peter Falk and Ben Gazzara and in going yeah you're just not gonna like like at the end of the at the end of the day you're just not gonna like these guys um, while in in like knocked up or something at the end and this might be you know Apatow or just might be more of a you know a systemic thing just from just like how Hollywood you know comedies are are crafted but. I mean, at the end of the day, you even if even if the Seth Rogen character is a shit for the entire movie, in those last like ten minutes, you kind of have to bring him back around so that you're like, oh, he's not that bad of a guy, and then in the movie, um, and that's where I like there's there's the delineating line because, again, like he's never gonna sacrifice his characters um, to just kind of make that point, and I feel like Cassavetes, and that's what kind of separates the two is at the end of the day, that's what he'll do in order to kind of suck you in more to that story Mm -hmm. i feel like he's it's weird this movie starts out with me sympathizing with them more because i mean we all fear to die and and to see people (laughs) our age die but then the way that they handle it you're like hmm i don't know if i can uh like you guys anymore but and i and i enjoy that any final thoughts before we wrap up if you have a criterion channel it is available there husband's rock Shout out to marriage. We love it's, monogamy. I, 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 I forgot to put it as my letterbox review, but I was going to put, you know, the ultimate Saturdays for the boys movie. Yeah, I, I didn't actually, you know, I'd seen people share like the still images of the cast uh, flexing their muscles and drinking brewskis. And I always assumed those were like behind the scenes. <laughs> it's not like, actually on camera. Images. I, yeah, I didn't realize those were like actual images from the movie Husbands of just these boys just c- cracking open some cold ones, having a good old time. All right. Well, uh, I believe that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary and on Twitter and Instagram at handle at cinematary and on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash cinematary where we post all the movies that we talked about in this episode. Also, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash cinematary. We have a new film theory and chill up for uh, all those video game fans. And then we'll, since we are now in the month of August, we will have a new one coming out this month. So head over to patreon.com slash cinematary if you'd like to hear more on that. Uh, but thank you to our patrons, Cam, Chad Newsom, Christina Daughtry, Cindy Roberts, Harry Eskin, Hell Yeah Small World, Joe Jordan, Maggie, Matthew Lingo, Pedro Seraphim, Ron Hayes, The Kittiest of Kittens, Titus Arthur, Tyler Chandler, and Whitney Rio Ross. Thank you so much for your patronage. Next week, we will be continuing our Young Critics Watch Old Movie series with 1979 Stalker, our first Tarkovsky. Tarkovsky. There we go. I'm going to mess it up so many times next week. Let's just get get that out of the way. Tarkovsky. Tarkovsky. Okay. We're going to watch that. We're going to watch that next week. Um, 
And we're get, and I mentioned it last week, but we're winding down. After that, we have two, only two more Young Critics movies. So if you have not, uh, you're just catching up on the series. This is your first episode you've checked out. Head back. We got. I mean, we talked a little bit about the Black Cat earlier in this episode. We have an episode on that. Metropolis, Spring in a Small Town, Hell's a Poppin', lots of good stuff. Uh, so check out the Young Critics Watch Old Movie series. Until next week, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.